God welcomes our questions. In fact, I think that part of a healthy faith is for us to have questions. Even doubts can be a part of our healthy faith. This Sunday and last Sunday, we are having a very short message series that is answering questions, and there are questions that you all had. We asked a few weeks ago for people to fill out cards or put things online and ask some of the questions that they have about faith, about the Bible, asking what, what does this or that mean? And so we have attempted to answer some of those. Last week, we got to some of those questions. This week, we've got a few more. I'm going to have to answer some online. I got a lot more than, we, than you would put up with me answering on a Sunday morning. Not more than I could answer. I just, you know, whatever. So, hey, I just want to say first, why, why are we doing this? Why answer these questions? And I think a couple of things are really important about this. The first one is, I think it's important for us, and it matters for our own personal relationship with God. A lot of us have felt kind of an implicit or maybe overt pressure in church not to ask the questions that we have. We feel like, hey, I'm not supposed to, to bring those things to God. As if God were somehow intimidated or uh, upset by our questions. But that's not the way that God perceives our questions. I have to admit, as a pastor, it can be a little bit intimidating. But for God, your questions, our questions that we bring to God are not intimidating to the Lord. He wants to hear for us, hear from us. He's, this is not scary for God. So I'm hoping that when we think of God's face, if we're imagining God's attitude toward us when we're asking a question, it's love. It's not anger or, or upset about why we're asking. So we need to change the way that we think about God. And, and second, I think it also changes the way that we think or interact with people around us. When we feel intimidated by big questions or we feel like there aren't any answers to those questions, sometimes we, we feel a little sheepish about our faith or we don't know if we can talk about being a Christian because somebody might ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. So we can feel more confident that there are good answers to questions. I think that's really important. But also, we start to feel more confident knowing that there's, for some questions, there aren't good answers. Or maybe we feel okay about not having the right answer right then. And so we can feel a little more confident in interacting with other people because they, we know that God does answer questions. And we know that that's the way that God sees these things. And I know for some people, if this is not really your cup of tea, thank you for being patient. Other people, every time they hear an answer to a question, they've got 10 more, right? So... Uh, that's how we're going to continue on. I'm sure that you have more questions. I'm happy to try to do that. We're, this is something we try to do at least once a year. Uh, it'll come back around. But if you have other questions, I'm always happy to meet with you or try to interact and talk about those things. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our questions. Father, thank you that you are one who welcomes our questions. You welcome us. Really, it's a, it's a, it's a, a reflection of how you welcome us. So, Lord, we pray for this time, and we pray for this uh, lousy preacher that you can help him to uh, help answer some of these questions, because you're great. We want to see you as being as great as you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are you ready? I think we said last time, some of these, we're going to say more about something than you wanted us to, and not enough about the thing that you wanted us to. Uh, maybe it's going to be... a as full as you had hoped, some of them it's not going to go as long as you wanted. I hope that you'll bear with us in that. All right, buckle up. Here's some of your questions. First one, 
When we are raptured, do our pets go with us? And if not, what happens to them? Yes. Yeah. Okay, clearly this is Roberto's question because he's the one who said yes. I don't normally call somebody out. Um, all right, it's a, it's a question about pets. I have a joke for you. I'm going to start with a joke. All right, there's two dogs and a cat who go to heaven, come before the Lord. First, the golden retriever says, here I am, Lord. And, and God says, I want you to tell me, what do you believe? He says, I, I don't know what I believe, but what I do know is that I, I love my master so much, and I, I just wanted to please him, and I, I wanted to obey him. He says, God says, that's good enough for a dog. Come on in. You can come in, yes. Next, the pug comes to the Lord. And, the pug sa- and God says, what did you believe? He said, you know what? I, my master had a master, and I think that you are that master. So I want you to be my master. He says, yes, pug, come. You can be with me. The cat comes before the Lord. And God says, cat, what do you believe? And the cat says to God, I believe you're sitting in my seat. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let's answer this question in a couple of different sections. So, first of all, the question is, will pets be with us in the new creation? And my answer to that is, sure, why not? Uh, There's not a lot in Scripture about animals in heaven. It's not the main emphasis, as you can imagine, of the biblical writers. I think they're going to be animals. Uh, They are part of the goodness of the first creation. I don't see why they wouldn't be a part of the goodness of the second creation. Uh, There is some mention in the Bible of animals in heaven. Mostly they have nicer natures, you know, kind of the the lion doesn't eat animals anymore, eats grass, that kind of stuff. So they're peaceful, not dangerous, so we do see animals there. Second part of this I want to get at is when we are raptured, that part, um, it, I, so I want to be clear that the, how we understand Christ's return, you can back up one slide, how, how we understand Christ's return, uh, you may have been taught that Christ is going to come and take some people away before a time of great trial. And the Bible does talk about Christ returning. It's a big, it's always been a part of the Christian faith. But he's not returning once to take away Christians and one more time for judgment. So if you have in mind that you are going to somehow disappear and your dog is going to be stuck at home with nobody to feed him, if that's what the question is, it's not going to work that way. That's not what's happening. Christ is going to return one time. It is going to be obvious for everyone. It talks about it being like lightning across the sky that everyone can see. Everybody will know when Christ is back. The appeal of the rapture idea, I will say, is that it helps us to avoid persecution and suffering. I think we, want, we don't want that stuff. We don't want that. But the Bible speaks to Christians in a way that it expects that we as Christians will experience failure. We will experience suffering. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience all the trials and tribulations and suffering that are in the world. And the book of 1 Peter was written in particular to encourage believers who are suffering. And because of that, he mentions suffering 19 times. Let's read that verse from 1 Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind 
of sufferings. It helps us to remember some of the other believers around the world who are going through great sufferings right now. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So we, we should count on Christ to return. But in the midst of the difficulties and suffering of this world, we should cling well to Christ. Okay, the next one is, how does God determine who will receive a medical miracle to save their life at this time, while others do not, even though many are praying for that person to receive a miracle? Uh, there was a, this is a really difficult question because it, there is a lot of pain behind it. And I think a lot of us have experienced that pain of not having our prayers answered in the way that we want. Uh, even if there's lots of people praying, all these people prayed, and then why, why in this place and why not in this place? And the answer we have to give is we don't really know. Uh, we know that God is good. We know that God is powerful. But there are moments when because of God's, the way that God answers or if God, doesn't, if God says no at this time, it looks like God isn't powerful. It looks like God isn't good. And so what do we do when we're caught in those situations? There, there was a related question that said, what do we do? Are we able to express anger to God when things don't go the way that we wanted them to or expected them to? And I think the answer is yes. And the only language we have for those moments is the language of lament like Psalm 13 that we read earlier. What we have is the language of lament to say, God, this looks like you're not powerful, and it looks like you're not good, but I know those aren't true, so what do I do? God, you're the one that needs to vindicate yourself. I think in the difficulties of those moments, it really tries our trust in the Lord. And I wish I had a more satisfying answer than that. And uh, maybe some of you can think of something a bit better than that. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us and the glory revealed in others as well. And uh, we have to trust in God's purposes. And I, that's not always going to be very satisfying. So if that was your question, I, I hope that that helps a little bit, but I, I realize that in some aspect it, it doesn't actually answer it. And I know behind the person who asked that question, and for many of us, I know there's a great deal of pain, and I, I think that we can't be flippant when we talk about praying for other people, and we need to be careful then about what other pain there might be. And you can't just say, well, you know, God's got a plan, it's okay. We can't blow those things off as well. It, there's deep pain in that. All right. Much, a little lighter topic, okay? Is getting a tattoo considered defacing God's body? Great question. Great question. Uh, the quick answer is no. It's not defacing God's body. It's not a sin. If you wonder if I'm just defending myself, I do not have any tattoos. I'm not just defending myself. Uh, it is interesting to note that tattooing is not mentioned in the New Testament. It is mentioned in the Old Testament, though. This is Leviticus 19. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Uh, the kinds of tattoos that are mentioned here is likely pretty different from the kinds of tattoos that we get today. But if you were an Orthodox Jew, if you were observing the law of Moses, I think this would preclude you from getting a tattoo. However, as Christians... We have a different relationship to the law now that Christ has fulfilled the law. 
Listen to this. This is Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. So what the law was powerless to do, what the law was, the law can't transform us. It was in effect, but it was power, is powerless to do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So he fully met the righteous requirement of the law who did not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Christ has now fulfilled the law. This is, a, this is an interesting question because it talks to us about how do we relate to the Old Testament law? And we are no longer under the law. Now, I will say everything that was in the law that's related to ceremonial cleanliness, that's not in effect anymore. Everything that is related to the civil laws about how they govern their society, that's not in effect anymore. There are moral laws that are in the Old Testament that are still in effect. Do not kill is still in effect. It's still active. Uh, but the laws about not cutting your beard, those are not in effect. And I'll say even laws like not having sex while your wife is on her period, not in effect. Uh, and here's, this is why this is important, because sometimes people will critique Christians and say, well, you're not doing this or that thing, because, even though it's mentioned in the Old Testament. Kurt, you are wearing a shirt that has two different cloths woven together. That is forbidden in the law. I'm literally wearing a shirt like that right now. But it does, here's the deal, is that those things do not apply to us. No, we are not doing those things. They don't apply to us anymore. That is also, I will say, that's why as a Christian, you can appeal to Old Testament laws when you are talking about sexual purity. I think it's not going to be helpful in your discussion. We're going to get to that in a moment a bit more. But for our question right now, can you get a tattoo? I am so glad that, um, so who, who asked this question? Was it, it was Jan Moles, Jim Lowry, and Gene, uh, all, the, all the crew that works out here? Right? Weren't you guys all planning on getting matching face tattoos? That's what you told me, yeah. Um, so can you get a tattoo? Yes. So um, I, I think that, however, I will say as, as Christians, there are certain things that do constrain us in the kinds of tattoos that we could get. We're constrained not by the Old Testament law, but by the New Testament law of the Spirit. So we won't, as Christians, get tattoos of things that are going to violate love of God or love of neighbor. So that means, among other things, hey, that rules out all the satanic stuff. You can't get any racist stuff, right? Not loving God, not loving neighbor. It's much more than that as well, but I, I think we need to think about that. Does it violate love of God or neighbor? There are some questions of wisdom as well. We want to be wise stewards of our witness to other people. We want to be wise stewards of our money. They can be very expensive. So what I will say, though, if you happen to have a tattoo of an Old Testament scene like this, of uh, this is uh, Samson bringing victory by killing the lion and with the donkey's bone. This is Ian, Ian uh, Gregory in the back. He has the most boss tattoo of them all. Uh, you can have this one of Samson killing the lion with the donkey jawbone on there. That is pretty awesome. So, Jan, you can think about that. Okay, she's nodding. Ian will tell you who his art, tattoo artist is. Uh, it doesn't have to be a Christian image. I will say, you know, it can even be something fun and silly. I think that that uh, is okay. 
uh, I'd be interested in talking with you some more about, hey, how do we honor God with our bodies? I think there's a larger question for us about how we do honor God with our bodies and do we use them for his glory or for our shame. Here's our last one. Uh, We've got (coughs) a few minutes uh, to get into this one. It may be one of the bigger ones for some of us. Probably all of us, actually. This might be the thing that's um, upsetting to you or maybe has caused you a lot of confusion or just kind of wondering wondering what's happening in the world. Uh, this, is a, uh, this question is this. What do you think about affirming or side A theology? Is it plausible? That might mean nothing to you. You're like, what is this question about? This is a question about human sexuality, about the relationship of homosexuality to Christianity. It's one of the biggest topics in our world today. I think it's, it's scary for a lot of people, or uh, maybe it's very emotionally charged. Can we admit that? This is an emotionally charged subject uh, for everybody. So you may not know these terms, side A and side B. Side A is the affirming side. They would say they are Christians who believes that God blesses same-sex marriages. Side B Christians would be those who believe in a traditional or historic definition of marriage between a man and a woman, but who use LGBTQ terms to define themselves. They say, I am a gay Christian, and I'm celibate because of it. So side A Christians believe that God blesses their gay relationships, while side B Christians will pursue chastity either through heterosexual marriage, but most people through celibacy. So that's where we're at. The evangelical covenant denomination agrees that the Christian standard for sexual expression is faithfulness and heterosexual marriage and celibacy and singleness. So this question basically asks, hey, what merits do you, Kurt, what merits do you see in the affirming theology? Is there, what positive things do you see, this stance that blesses gay marriage? And I'm going to give you some of the main points that side A argument has, and I'm going to tell you what I think, okay? Uh, so here are some of the main benef- uh, like arguments. The first one is knowing LGBTQ people, which may be you. I want to say, first of all, it might be you. This may be you here in this room. When you know gay or transgender people personally, it changes the way that you might feel about this question. It's, it's not something out there anymore, but it's, it's here. It's something that you know. You, it's not something, it's someone. It touches you personally. And so when it's no longer theoretical, you really finally feel the human part of this. So if you have met very nice and loving gay people, you are inclined to think that maybe, you know, I thought that they were other before, but now I, I, I want to jettison my idea that they aren't nice, so maybe I need to jettison all of my previous ideas. Maybe, maybe the previous way I thought was just kind of bigoted, like the way I saw them. And I think, I want to say, it is good for us to leave behind our bigoted view of our neighbors. It, it is hard to love people if we are demeaning them. But just because people have been bigoted in the past doesn't mean that we've been misreading the biblical text. I, I think that that's, that's the hard point. It's been difficult for me in my life when people ask me, people who I love, people who are family, people who are uh, almost like adopted children to me, who have wondered what I think about their 
choice or their their inclination, we'll say, about the way that they're, they feel that they have been made. And how, so I have to talk about how they express their sexuality and not who they are. Those are very different things to me. So I don't judge them for who they are. The Christian message is more about how, they, how it's expressed. Okay, the next part would be, the Mosaic law does not apply anymore in the light of Christ's death. And you heard me say a little while ago, I kind of agree with this one. Uh, I partly agree with this. Not all of it, though. The Mosaic law related, I said, to ceremonial law and civil law are no longer applicable, but the moral law is. And if, if, they're, if you are confused if some laws are still in effect, we can sometimes see that they are repeated in the New Testament. And the prohibitions against homosexual practice are restated in the New Testament, like in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. Uh, but Jesus himself in... Uh, Mark 7 shows also that the, that the, and in the rest of the New Testament, that, hey, the cleanliness laws and the ceremonial code are not in effect. But it's not because of that. There is a biblical view of sexuality that doesn't stand on the Mosaic code. Like that quote from Leviticus that we read before. It's based on the created order, that God created things in a certain way, on God's purposes for marriage, like what we see in Ephesians 5. Uh, marriage is supposed to be a lesson for us about Christ and the church. There's supposed to be an, an otherness, that it's a picture of difference between us. So to quote the words of Wesley Hill, he says this, homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity, and therefore homosexual practice goes against God's express will for all human beings, especially those who trust in Christ. So it, it, it's not the Mosaic Law that applies, but there are other things that apply. Uh, for the New Testament text, part three, they, they would say, so this is a side A argument, they would say the New Testament texts speaking against homosexual practice are about exploitation or are about unrestrained lust. So they're saying it's not about what you thought it was about. It was about something else. So the, the argument is that, that Paul and other biblical writers didn't have a concept of homosexual orientation and that these texts are actually about something else, about sexual exploitation or lust or something like that. Uh, but that doesn't line up with the way that the research has gone. And not just research from conservative uh, people or from Christians. This is from uh, people who don't believe in the Bible. Uh, there is a, uh, a fascinating book uh, called uh, Sexuality in the New Testament. It's a loader. Um, he's not a Christian. In fact, he, he, has, he sees no problem with homosexuality. But he says, listen, people in the New Testament definitely understood orientation. This is not a problem. Uh, this was known in antiquity. In, uh, Plato, in his symposium, for example, he has, uh, uh, there is a man named Aristophanes, and he tells a story where some people are inherently attracted to people of the same sex rather than the opposite sex. So we see that even in the writings of Plato. This is stuff that was known. It's not like people didn't know about this. Uh, and in Romans 1, go ahead and put that verse up there. In Romans 1, Paul describes homosexuality as men burning with passion for each other. This doesn't sound exploitative to me. This is people who are burning for each other. That's, not, that's mutuality that's there. All right. The next one is this, this part of this. is that This is actually, I think, the strongest view. Uh, this is probably the strongest point that's made by side A theologians. They would say that the ark 
of Scripture points toward more inclusion and not exclusion. And this argument is strong. It comes from a text like this from Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free in Christ. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. If you are in Christ, you are actually a de descendant of Abraham by adoption. Nice. And heirs according to the promise. So, so the argument here is that prior to Christianity, Gentiles were second class, but now they're included. Prior to Christianity, women were considered second class, and now they're included. And so the argument goes, gay people were considered second class, and now they're included in the same way. It's the inclusion of the gospel that allows this. Uh, I think that that's pretty compelling as far as arguments go, but in order to do that, you have to ignore some other New Testament texts that are talking about how acting on these sexual impulses is not in line with this new life in Christ. So I, I think what the Bible teaches instead is that instead of approving of our desires, what we are told is that we're called to new life. Kurt, your desires, my own broken sexual desires, all of us have broken sexual desires. It doesn't go away if you get married. It doesn't go away as you get older. There's still a problem of porn. There's still a problem of infidelity. There's still a problem of us lusting after others. But what we see is that when we come to Christ, we are saved by God's grace. And so it doesn't matter. That part is true. It doesn't matter who we are and where we came from, what we've done. We talked about that last week. It doesn't matter even how we have identified. We should all put ourselves in the category of being sexually immoral. All of us have been idolaters. All of us have put God as secondary to other things and called those other things more important. All of us have, have been thieves or greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, Anything, we have put all those things, and in the scripture, it says that those things are excluded from the kingdom of God. But we are a congregation of saved people. We have all sinned, and all of us needs God's grace. Everyone needs God's grace. And, and I think unless you understand the depths of your own rejection of God, your own isolation from God's purposes, unless you have personally kind of a accepted your, the status of your own sin, you're not going to be able to welcome God's grace, and you're not going to be able to welcome other people as saved sinners either. You know, it's going to affect our worship. Our church is a community of sinful people who gather together to rely on the grace of God, who gather together to worship a God who has received us in Christ. And so it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says that's what the church looks like. He says, he listed off all those things that I said, slanderers and sexually immoral and, and, and those of us who have acted on our homosexual impulses, those of us who are greedy and, and drunkards. That's what some of you were. When we look around, we say, that's what we were. This is who we were. But we are now gathered together. We are now washed. We are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul understood what a loving relationship could look like, but he also knows that anyone can be welcomed 
and sanctified and justified. Not because we do good stuff, but because of what Jesus did. I haven't sorted my whole life out. I'm somebody who clings to Jesus. So Christ's death and resurrection is a great equalizer. We are all equal in recognizing our sin and our brokenness, and we can all be saved. And I want to say there's some things that just don't go away. If you are alcoholic when you come to Jesus, you're probably still Christian, an alcoholic Christian. It's not going away. But you can live sober. And if you're gay, it's not going away. But you can allow God to call you and me to live into costly faithfulness. I, I think all of us should be living in costly faithfulness. I think too often, most, those of us who are heterosexual have thought that God doesn't need to change me that much sexually. But that's not the, that's not the point. It's not, that, it's not that anybody should, nobody should have an easy life of coming to follow Jesus. It's supposed to be picking up our cross and following him. If your vision of what it means to be a Christ follower is that it didn't require you to change at all, it means you haven't understood what it means to follow Jesus. Because it's going to change your life. And it's not just for gay Christians. And this is the, the last part on this, and this is the last point for me this morning, is that the question we can ask is, how can we condemn people to live in loneliness? I've heard that. Or is a celibate life a plausible life? And I want to say, first of all, it's not just for gay people who, have, who live a celibate life. It's for all of us who are single. And there are a lot of single people in our church. And I want to say, actually, the kicker is all of us are single at some point. We all start off single. And a lot of us will, even if we get married, we end our lives also single after the death of our spouse. All of us have to know how to live into this. I was really challenged in my understanding of the life of the church by a gay pastor named Ed Shaw. Uh, he pushes back on this question of celibacy and for that to be a plausible life uh, by saying it is not the responsibility of gay Christians to create a community of believers that supports people in celibacy. It is up to all of us to have a plausible reality where people can live a faithful life in singleness. That we should be inviting people together in life and community. Everyone should be a part of all of our events. That marriage shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. Because it's not. Those of us who are married, is it the end-all, be-all? Somebody said yes, but she wasn't married. Okay. Okay. Um, the end all faithfulness is what matters so we are entering into the holiday season I think we need to start thinking about our community are we, are we inviting everyone to be a part of our celebrations is anyone getting left out does everyone feel connected to our wider community I think that those are faithful important questions so that's, that's what I see about the side A view I appreciate I want to say that What's motivated behind this is that people want, have, you have a place that you love. You love being a part of a church. And you have people that you love. You, you love being a church, you love the Lord, and you have people that you love, and you want those two things to be together. And I think that that is a very positive thing. God is calling people to follow Jesus. But the direction of Scripture isn't for us to change it or to make it what we would want it to be more palatable, I guess. 
talking about sex is a little taboo in church, uh, but my hope is that we can start to have more honest conversations about faithfulness and healthy sexuality. Uh, I, I heard a gay speaker recently say, uh, we were in a small group of uh, people, and it was about what gay people in your church want to hear from their pastors. And, and she said this. She said, pastors, your silence speaks volumes. Please talk about sexuality. So uh, for the person who asked this question, I want to thank you for having the boldness to ask that question. Uh, and I want to say we're not answering it because we want to get the issue right in our church. Let's be really clear about that. We're not just trying to get the issue right in our church. There are individuals who are presently in our church, uh, but it's not just about, this is all about us. This is about the people who are in our church. It's about our kids. It's about our family. It's about our friends. This isn't something that's out there. It's something that's right here. It affects us personally. So I think that this is going to put you in a funny position. The biblical position is going to look really precarious. It's not going to look like rejecting people. It's not going to look like just saying whatever we do is right, and it's going to be a tougher walk that we have. It says, I love you so much, and it's going to look like you love people so much that you completely affirm them, but it's also going to mean that we also hold a biblical position. It means that we risk being a little unpopular, but we have to do this because it's what Scripture says, but even more than that, we have to engage in this stuff. We can't forget about it because there's so, this is the future of our church. This is stuff that matters to the next generation. We can't stick our head in the sand like Kurt wants to do sometimes. So if this whole thing has put you on edge, I will say our position as a church is not changing, but I do want to say our posture has to. Our posture toward the LGBTQ community or toward people does need to change. There's major work that needs to be done on how we love and care for our queer neighbors. And we can do a lot better. If you feel like you have any questions about that, please let me know. And I want to say, if you are gay or transgender and you're here today and you're queer and nobody knows, I want you to know that I would like to make our church a little more safe for you to explore Jesus. I also would like to talk with you. I'd be happy to talk with you a little bit more. I'd like to hear your story. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear from you. That's the hard part for us as Christians. We have to walk the line between saying, I am accepted by God, but God also wants to change me. And I don't like that for myself either. Let's conclude in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning and these tough questions. Some of whom, some of which I was, it's easier to get at. Some are a lot more complicated. And I pray for the lament that needs to continue in our church over the brokenness of our world. God, we, we want our friends and neighbors to love you. And there are things that are blocking them from taking that step. Whether they don't believe in the reliability of Scripture or they, or they think that somehow that their, their sexuality precludes them from taking steps to you. God, we pray that for everyone in this room and everyone, we want the good news to be good. And for us to preach the good news in a way that helps us to see that this is good news for gay people. This is good news for people who have been stealing. This is good news for all of us who have committed adultery, for those of us who have stolen, for those of us who are greedy. And God, may we identify ourselves with everyone who is lost. May they come to faith and knowledge of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.